Hello and welcome back to the, the mentors. mentors. We need to get a little bit more aligned on yeah. our intros. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. <laughs> uh, we're the mentors, and this is a show where we provide insights into how entrepreneurs and creators get their ventures off the ground to help them overcome the obstacle faced, especially in the critical early days. And today we have a really awesome guest, and we're really excited for him to share his story with you. His name is Larry Petretti. And uh, he's an entrepreneur in New York City who started his first business, get this, at 55 years old, his first business, and within seven years grew to a $90 million a year construction enterprise. Uh, And he's had customers like Canon, Bank of America, Avon, and hundreds more. And it's a really, really cool story. So we're looking forward to uh, talking to Larry today. Hey, Larry, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Larry. Uh, We like to start off uh, in the beginning to give people a little bit of context about what you did in your life that made you even consider entrepreneurship as an option. And it took you a little while to get there, but it's something that you decided for yourself that it was right for you. So um, I know from uh, from a little pre-interview we we did with you that you started off your career as a carpenter. Right. Did you know back then that you might be an entrepreneur someday? Did you think you had what it takes at that point in time? Well, I went to a, uh, an all-boys Catholic high school where it was unheard of not to go to college. It was the early 70s, late 60s. And my parents really didn't have a lot, couldn't afford college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I decided to maybe take some classes at night. And I went to work for a local construction guy and uh, learned carpentry. So you're somewhat of an entrepreneur in that other than your hourly wage and your hourly work week, you do side jobs on the weekends and it was a pretty good living, but it's a hard living. You know, you get injured, you put an ace bandage around to take some aspirin and you go to work because you only get paid if you work. And um, all my life, I always read a lot and I always thought to myself, what if, what if, what if, but I had gotten married young, started a family. I was a dad at 23. So... When you look at starting a business and the risk, you know, there's different times in your life. It's less risky than others. Most of the time, it's when you're young, just out of school. You don't have a lot of responsibility. Then it's also what kind of capital does it take to start a business? And the next opportunity you have, like in my case, is when the kids are grown and gone. And assuming you're not in a mountain of debt, um, you have a good reputation, you start your business then, which is what I did. So all the time that I was working for um, a big construction company, a a worldwide construction company, I always read. I took the train. I had an hour commute each way from up in Connecticut. And so I read probably over the course of 20 years, every business book, autobiography. I was a voracious reader. I still am. I read three books at a time. And so you, you you get things out of all the books you read, whether it was, you know, Henry Ford's autobiography and, and him saying that um, if you're in business for the sole purpose of making a profit, you won't be in business for long. But if you're in business and your, your goal is to add value, then profits will follow. Um, <clears throat> I took a course called Storynomics, which is Robert McKee, who is the guy who taught Everybody in Hollywood had to write screenplay. And the people he taught are responsible for like 60 Oscars and 200 Emmys and and whatever. And he came up with a formula that you can stand up in front of somebody and recite stats. You know, I've built 100 of these. Uh, I can do this with my eyes closed. And he feels to be successful, you need to take people on a journey. So I started doing my presentations where I open with telling the client and the architect 
and the facilities person, you've all been involved in construction, so you know a million things can go wrong. There's thousands of pieces that we have to put together, and any one of them can be the success or the failure of a job. We know where all those traps are from my 40 years experience, and we're going to make sure. So you, you get people um, engaged instead of them listening to you as one of four contractors they're, they're um, listening to. So what I'm trying to say is that through reading over all those years, I always said to myself, boy, if I was ever the boss, I would do it. And then um, after having a very successful career with a huge company and traveling all over the world, um, I got the opportunity to be president of a company, a, a startup company, and we were very successful. And then when the chairman retired, I, I really wasn't on the same page with the CEO. And even though I was president, it was, you know, I said, you know what, maybe it's time to start my own thing. So I had no debt. Uh, I had my house for a long time. My kids, like I said, were grown and gone. I already had my first grandchild. So I decided in December of 2010, the economy was in the tank. Um, I knew I had a great reputation with clients. Uh, my friends in the industry said, use your name so people won't have to say, oh, ABC Construction, is that Larry Petretti? Who is it? So I went with Petretti and Associates. But more importantly, my friends in other industries, uh, lawyers, investment bankers, they said, when you use your name, it delivers a message to the people you're working for that the reputation of risk, it's all on you and that there's no hiding your name's on the door. And you also hold the people you work that work for you to a higher standard. So I went with that, and we won projects with massive law firms. And, you know, we're a little guy compared to my competitors, and I really believe that had a lot to do with it. So, you know, that's how the transit was, it was over several decades. Well, it sounds, there's a lot of, I think, interesting nuggets here that I, I want to make sure we don't miss, because I think you developed a, a several skill sets um, leading up to that point right. that uh, gave you the confidence, the know-how to be able to structure this business in a way that would make it successful. If we back up to, to when you were starting your career, when you, you mentioned that, you know, if you don't show up to the site, you don't do the work, you don't get right. paid. Uh, did you, were you responsible for also bringing in your own business? No, when I was, point? back when I was a carpenter, you show up on the job and then I was a very good carpenter. So I got made a foreman and over the course of the first 10 years from when I got out of high school, uh, I started running crews. I was a very good finished carpenter, but I also knew how to manage men and get the job going. So I really learned our business from the ground up. And then in, I think it was 1980, early 80s, I injured my wrist. <clears throat> I took a fall off a platform and broke some bone all the way inside my wrist. But the gentleman I was working for said, instead of sitting home and collecting workers' comp, why don't you come into the office? I'll teach you how to estimate cost, which is the business side of the business. And at the same time, you can project manage the jobs we're doing. So that was the point where I transitioned from being a worker to being more of a management person. Then when I, um, that was- How happening. old were you at this point? I was in, I think, my mid-20s. Okay. Um, then I moved back to New York, because at that time I was living out west in New Mexico. Um, and I went to work for a company as a project superintendent. And I interviewed at a couple of places, and one company said to me, you know, we have an abundance of people who know the business, but we don't have an abundance of people who know the business that are clean-cut and speak the king's English. <laughs> We'd like you to work in the office in cost estimating and go on presentations, 
because you know how a job goes together. And that was the transition from being in the field to being in the office. And then I just continued to read how to present all those things. And uh, I think what I had over a lot of people is a lot of the people who went to college, they came out with degrees in construction management, architecture, engineering, whatever it was, but had no field experience. And there's something about having that field experience when you talk to people, they know that you're not just book smart. What we did, and um, what a lot of people should actually realize that are, you know, right now working, but are thinking about maybe starting their own business, is it is also very, very valuable to, while basically hired by somebody else, use that as your education. Absolutely. And you did that for, you know, 20, 30 years, it looks like before you started your own business. But there's a lot of opportunity there to learn, like you said, you know, on the side, maybe you were doing reading, but also you were given the opportunity to present, to practice pitching or presenting in front of right. lots of people. And slowly you got more and more comfortable. And that's probably better than any, you know, higher degree that you can even get. Right. Because it's way more relevant. Right. Um, but what was it about you that you think enabled you to get that opportunity to go from field work to, you know, office work or the business side of things, which it seems like has potentially more upside uh, in the construction career. Why don't most people get that opportunity? Was it the King's English? Was that the biggest? I think so. You know, most of the guys in the field, and even when I was working on, on a job set as a carpenter, you know, I didn't shave. You know, you can say what you want, guys, chew tobacco and spit all over the, sure. the slab and whatnot. Um, but I had, I had children. I was somewhat responsible. And I... I cleaned up. And um, when I realized, geez, everybody in the management is wearing a suit. Why go to work in a pair of khakis, a shirt, not even a sport coat? So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do what they do. And um, I think a lot of it's luck. It's being in the right place at the right time. And you can say luck is where preparedness meets opportunity. And that's true to an extent. But I think there's opportunities in life and you can almost categorize people in, in three ways. You could say everybody gets an opportunity. Some people are so bogged down with um, whatever their issues are, family issues, personal problems, whatever it is, they don't see the opportunity. Others see it, but they like the security of being where they are, and so they're afraid to take it. Others see it and just jump on the train and run with it. And sometimes it leads to failure, but failure's a learning experience. Um, so it's kind of a combination of, of everything. And I was actually very, very shy growing up to the point where if I look at family movies that my father took, you know, I have my hand in front of my face <laughs> and things like that. So what got me out of that and able to present, I really don't know. It just sort of, it sort of happened. But there are a lot of things. One of the things I've told my children who are now 35 to 40, um, and over the last 10 years, you know, the millennial generation, I said, you know, you're far smarter. Um, the teachers I had in school had teaching certificates or bachelor's degrees. The teachers you had had master's or PhDs. You can access information at light speed. So I'm not even going to go there and say we're smarter. My grandchildren are evolutionary smarter in that all they know is technology. I mean, I've seen two-year-olds with an iPad, but there's no substitute for time served dealing with people and you know whether it's an irate client whether it's a boss and I, I told my kids your 20s are going to be a continuance of your education I feel they were for me even though I didn't have a, a secondary education you know college but you learn how to work with people you don't like people you love 
You work for people you don't like and people you like. You work with people who take all the credit for what you do, but it's like learning to run a marathon. It toughens you. And so you got to kind of put your nose to the grindstone, grind it out, and then a day will come. You'll, you'll realize people are turning to you asking a question or a question's asked in a room and everybody looks at you for the answer. And I don't know when it happens, mm-hmm. but it happens. Interesting. Did you, at that point, uh, want to be a leader? Were you working toward, you know, were you trying to climb the ladder in the organization Absolutely. that you were at? Because it's, um, you directly affect, you know, there's people that are revenue producers in companies, not just salespeople, but if you're managing a project and you're good at it and you make more profit on that job than what was originally scheduled, and, and our business is one of raises and bonuses, we reward our people for that. And as opposed to being an accountant where you're really just part of overhead. So I was definitely in a position where I could affect the bottom line. And then um, I was fortunate that uh, uh, one perfect example, a turning point in my career in 1994, there were a series, a bunch of account executives, which is what I was for this company, and two jobs came up and they needed presentations done. And this one guy, Carl, I was working with, he got picked because he just finished his job to do a presentation for the Omni Hotel. Literally later that week, I had closed out my job and I got picked to do the presentation for Donaldson Lufkin and Jenrette, which was the first investment banking firm to move from downtown Manhattan to midtown Manhattan. His was a $35 million project where every nickel was watched and they were cutting corners and doing whatever they can to get this hotel renovated and back up and running so they could collect revenue. I was on a job with a premier investment banking firm that was a $140 million project. The biggest job the company had done to date. And it was very successful for a number of reasons. The biggest job, so everybody in the company, including the owners, were watching it. Uh, The subcontractors who worked on it wouldn't dare fail or they would never get work for that company again. And we had a sophisticated client who paid their bills like clockwork to make sure we got the manpower and it got done. So by luck of the draw, I got on that job and that uh, drove my success within that company to where I built out Bloomberg's headquarters up at 731 Lex, which was a couple hundred million, Bank of America headquarters for Texaco, MasterCard, IBM, and a number of others. And so with that kind of resume, it's easy to then uh, go on from there. So... Let's then, uh, I think this is a good transition to talk about when you got started with your business. It sounds like you've invested, uh, you know, decades into getting experience, into getting your name out there, building credibility. Uh, Would you say that that alleviated a lot of the pain for you and removed a lot of the risk when you you were starting off? The fact that you could, you had all these references that you could go after and also basically people that you go to to start getting contracts? Absolutely. Uh, our business comes from owners, obviously, but they hire brokers to find real estate to move into. They hire architects. They hire project management firms to manage the process. And once I got the word out to everybody that I'm starting a company uh, and I want to start out small, I'll come into your office and move one door and frame if that's what it takes. Um, and that my belief is, and underneath my logo, it says exceptional service. Because at the end of the day, yeah, we're a construction manager, but we're a service organization. And in corporate America, you're only as good as the last project you do. So you can do 40 projects. If that last one goes south, it's going to be a long time before you work from again. So it's good. It keeps you on your toes. So yes, um, 
I started my company with a temporary office space. There were four of us in there. And just started getting work. And then clients that had worked with me in the past started giving me work. And then a couple of clients, Bank of America to be one, teamed me up with a mega company that they were doing huge projects with. And they said, we want you to work for us up in the Northeast because you're from there and we can trust you. We realize you're a small company. You just started. You're doing 20 million. But we want to partner you with this big company. And I said, sure, why not? And with them, I did, I think my first contract with them, one year in business was $26 million in branch work all over the Northeast. Uh-huh. And then they gave me the U.S. Trust headquarters the following year to build out, which was a $30 million project. And, and then, again, when Visa or Canon or Avon, who are people I know, see, well, geez, if Bank of America and Merrill Lynch and U.S. Trust... I also have done a lot of broadcast work in my lifetime. So CBS, MTV, I do all of World Wrestling Entertainment's work up in Connecticut, their production facilities, their office space. So it kind of like some work generates others. And within a year, we moved out of a temporary space and rented office space. And now I just moved this past week to bigger space. Leveling up. I love it. Um, If we back up just a little bit, and when you were first starting out, when you made that decision that you're going to go into business for yourself, what was the first thing that you did? I was working for a company. I was president. Uh, the chairman, who I really liked and got along with, he retired. And I just thought, is there really a future? And, and I, I went and I hired an executive coach mm-hmm. uh, for a few thousand dollars, a really nice guy, lovely guy, very smart. I knew his dad. He was head of the School of Communication uh, at West West Connecticut University. So Bill and I sat down and we had several dinners and lunches and he kind of liked, helped me figure out what I was really worth and what I really wanted. And I knew I wouldn't, I, I could go on doing what I was doing, working for somebody else till I was 65, 70, whatever time and have a great retirement and all that. But he determined through Myers-Briggs personality assessments and just conversations with people who knew me and as he got to know me I wouldn't be happy so he said to me at the end of our six-month engagement he said you have every tool necessary to start your own business but more importantly you don't have that big an ego if it failed with your reputation and your resume you could go to work for anybody else in the city and that that was my safety valve I said what do I have to lose um my wife and I uh had no debt to speak of other than our mortgage. We had owned the house for a while. My kids were grown and gone. They were all married. They had kids of their own, so they have lives of their own, didn't depend on me for anything. And I figured it's not like I'm mortgaging the house. And in my business, you really just need an office space, a few hundred thousand dollars for insurance, and then you start getting work. And basically, as a construction manager, 92 cents on every dollar you collect thereabouts is the subcontractors or vendors money. So what you have to put in to manage the job, figure the cost, the insurance, is not that big a risk to start a construction company. But you mentioned uh, earlier, <clears throat> first of all, actually what I want to uh, mention is that it's great that you know you went out there and you're willing to talk to an executive coach or whoever it takes, right? You were right. at a crossroads. And a lot of people get to this point where they're uncertain, they don't know what step to take. 
Um, and what we always say is you got to get out of your own head a lot of times. You have yes. to talk to people. So it could be an executive coach. It could be a mentor or an advisor. It could be a friend or somebody in the industry that you really trust. It really doesn't matter whatever works for you. But that clearly gave you just a little bit of a motivation, maybe a little push yes. to go ahead and start it yourself. But even what you, you folks do. Um, and anybody listening to this podcast, you you hear people from all different businesses. And I'm sure there's, you know, the common denominator in any kind of business of what it takes to start it. So you guys as mentors for somebody, you know, whether it's a young person or somebody my age, be an invaluable resource because you've heard. I know from my business, I know what it takes. And I've read enough books to know that there are common denominators in every business. Yeah, absolutely. And um, but being able to being willing to go yes. out and talk to people. So a lot of people, you know, they get scared, they are vulnerable, they might have ideas, but they're worried that somebody's going to think they're stupid. I mean, it, you know, there's a variety of reasons and uh, excuses that you can come up with not to take that first right. step, but you need to take that first step. Um, but you mentioned so you, you talked to an executive coach, you had an idea that you want to start a business, you maybe got some temporary office space, but you mentioned that people a word got out that you were starting a business. You know, a lot of the people that might be listening, they might have ideas, but they get bogged down with what are literally the first steps that I'm doing? You know, am I sending e-cold emails? Am I cold calling people? Am I calling my referrals? So did you get into that temporary office space in the morning at 830 and pick up the phone and start calling uh, people that you knew to get the word out? Or how'd you get the word? I, out? I had to wait until I was officially gone from the place I was working, even though I gave them like a three month notice. Um, and what I did is the first thing I did is I bought three computers and I had a friend who was a financial guy and he was out of work on unemployment. I said, listen, how about I pay you to help me get systems and procedures set up? He was in the construction business. So he did that. Uh, a friend of mine that I worked with at the old other company that ran the Boston office and the London office retired after his wife had died. But we remained friends. He was living in Virginia. And I said, uh, his name is Nick. I said, listen, you're not doing anything. Why don't you come up here? I'll get you an apartment. And helped me get this started. And then there was a young woman, Tina, who um, worked for me as an estimator. And she had taken a month off. She was thinking about starting a family and whatnot. And I said, before you decide what you want to do, why don't you come to work for me and help me get this thing started with, you know, estimating and whatnot. And I said, if nothing else, the next six months will be an incredible experience for you because you'll, you're really going to learn what it takes to start a business. And we literally went into an office that was probably half the size of this room we're sitting in. And we're in a pretty small us. room. <laughs> yeah, at 192 Lex, one of those Broadway suite types of places with folding tables, the three computers I bought. And I told everybody before the holidays I started, I think the Monday was a January 4th of 2011. I said, on that Monday, you report to this address, the fourth floor, whatever it was, at 9 o'clock. And just started calling people, getting the bank relationship set up, you know, and just doing that. And then within two months, we started getting a couple little jobs, you know, 50,000, 100,000. And then the bank contacted us a few months later and we were rolling. And, and they understood I was a startup. And that's another thing with the bank. They said they didn't want to give me credit because they said, you're a startup. And I said, uh, I have an 800 credit store. I own real estate. I own this, that, and the other thing. I've been in this industry for 40 years. I'm not a startup. I'm a kickstart. Mm -hmm. And the banker looked at me, so he gave me a $600,000 line of credit. Wow. And, and that was another interesting thing. So I went to Bank of America because they were a client. 
impossible. They introduce you to a relationship manager. You deposit two or $300,000 in the account. It's like an Olympic event to prove that the money isn't laundered money from some drug deal. You got to go through all these tax returns, bank statements to prove that. And then literally three months later, I get a call from Delaware. Hello, I'm your representative from B of A. I'm proud to tell you that we approved you for a line of credit for $10,000. So I left. (laughs) And I said, do you realize I have a Bank of America credit card with a $40,000 line on it? Well, that's personal. This is business. I says, not much more personal you can get than my business. So somebody said, go with a small local commercial bank. So I went with Sterling National, a bank I never heard of. And they've been our bank for seven years. Small market. Um, they deal with companies in the zero to $30 million range. And they were great. Now we're moving to PNC because they're a mid-market bank and they deal with clients from 50 to $200 million. Well, you know what? You, you had to... Essentially, you knew what you needed for the business and you had to go out there and find it. But um, so it sounds like before you even got that first $50,000, $100,000 job, you had to invest a couple hundred thousand of your own money right. into getting the insurance and um, making those first couple of hires. Right. Probably had to tell them that, hey, you you have a job for at least a few months, but we'll see what happens. Right. right. That's exactly yeah. what I told them. Um, so that's, so you were in the position of strength there, luckily that you had some savings from all the work that you've done, right. um, in, uh, in the executive work that you did at those companies. But it's important to remember that there's different models of doing this, right? So you had a, a, a safety net, so to speak, because you actually invested the time uh, decades into, um, you know, creating an environment for yourself where you could take a, a bit of a risk like this, right. uh, because in the, you wouldn't completely run out of money. You wouldn't be. Uh, you could do it in an intelligent way right. uh, and measure it along the way. But, you know, other people that are thinking about, oh, I don't have um, that much in savings. Great. Nobody is telling you to quit your job. You have free time on the weeknights, yes, the absolutely. weekends. You know, what you did in the first few months is you pick up the phone and you started calling people. You have to do that work. You know, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. You have to crawl before you That's walk, right. all that stuff. I mean, but a lot of people these days, millennials, I guess, maybe even, they just think that, oh, um, why, why isn't my business doing well? Well, it's because you're not doing the actual work. Right. And it's hard work. I mean, yeah. there's no question about it. But I could have also got into what I did for a lot less money if I went really small and focused on little jobs or residential jobs. I wouldn't need the kind of insurance I had to get. But my feeling was my model was going to be work for corporate America. I learned over the years that restaurants can be terrible payers, retail outfits, um, hospitality, you know, they don't, they want to hold the last payment until they're generating revenue. Um, healthcare, they're on 180 day pay cycles. So you have to put a lot of money out before you start collecting. So I said, over the years, I realized corporate America demands a lot, but they pay their bills. So I needed really good insurance, like, you know, on the level of travelers or a on big, big name insurance, because I was going into some of these iconic buildings in New York city because corporate America isn't residing in a building like this or the one that I'm residing at at 270 Madison, they're in the towers. Mm -hmm. And so their insurance requirements are really high. So without the proper coverages, you're not even going to get approved in the building. Interesting. So, but that's another important thing that you mentioned, you know, you had enough experience where you could already identify with a gut feeling, what target customer you want to go after restaurants, was it going to work? It wasn't worth the headache. Uh, But also you had established yourself in the space already with some of these big players. Right. So now, 
you're working on this for X amount of months or how long basically maybe you can tell us how long did it take until you realized this is real? Um, there's probably no turning back and I'm not going to give up on this business. Uh, and I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but I knew the day I started it was going to be a winner. Well, I read a lot of books that a lot of successful businesses are start in economic bad times and 2009, 2010 were bad times. But I had a, what I learned from my executive coach from him talking to architects, project management firms, that I had a great reputation, um, that there were people I could call that wouldn't give me big jobs, but they would start out giving me small jobs. I had a following of subcontractors that came to me and said, you've always been a fair person to work for if you need our help with cash flow. So a lot of them said, I let you, I'll work for you for six months. You don't have to even pay me if you need the cash flow to keep your business going until such a time. But I never did that. My, my other principle, guiding principle, was to be very conservative financially because I wasn't going to go then mortgage the house and do everything that I had worked so hard for. So what I did is as we made money, I hired more people and got a second office, a third. And then finally, we had four of those temporary offices. We finally decided, let's go rent a real office. So I grew the company that way. With me, it was never, ever about being the biggest. It was always about being the best. And the other thing I did was, and this is something people my age have a really difficult time with, is they want to bitch and complain about the new generation and work ethics and whatnot. But I said, you can do all, all you want. But that's the reality of the new workforce. So let's find out what drives them. So it was flexible hours, which is very tough in my business. But I give everybody free health care. I um, close early on Fridays, so they have half day on Fridays. Mm -hmm. And people want recognition. A lot of people coming out. And I'm not going to just promote somebody for the sake of promoting them. But if you can have a conversation with somebody and you hire them because they're talented in one way or another... They have passion and they really want to learn. And you tell them, we're all on a first name basis and there's no other company out there that you're going to be able to walk into the owner's office and get personally mentored. Because we're a small company, we're 45 people. And you know what? The majority of people are hired that way because I think 37 out of 45 people who work for me are under 38. Wow. So there's great energy. I, I also believe in diversity. So I have... Everybody represented there. Mm -hmm. And I did that for another reason. It's, an, it's uh, indicative of the city we live in and corporate America. People say, oh, you, you're corporate America. And some of my real conservative friends think that everybody I work for is white middle class. No. The majority of executive directors and senior vice presidents in corporate America are women and people of color. And I could go right down the list and show you. So, again, to walk into a presentation with a bunch of middle-aged white guys, it's not going to win you any favors. <laughs> sure. To walk in with a good mix of people who are smart, young, and get it, and the client sees they're being supervised by people with and experience. And can bring a different perspective. Absolutely. Which is, which is so important. Right? I learned so much from including our new office. It's, it's techie. It's open. We have a living room set up in the middle of the office. We have a pantry with a bar. It's cool. That sounds like the coolest uh, construction company that I've ever You have to I've come by and see. You yeah. really do. It's really, um, it's really a cool place to work. There was a book I read 25 years ago. It was written by a guy from Bain & Company. We all have heard of Bain & Company. And it was called The Loyalty Effect. And it still sits on my shelf. And I've showed it to people. And if you come and visit my office, I'll show you. And it's got 
corners turned and underlined and all this. And what it was was a study of companies, all kinds of companies that are loyal to their employees, have the highest, not only employee retention rate, but client retention rates. Because when an employee is happy, he's going to project that when he goes to a client. And he's going to be loyal to that client and make sure that you always do the right thing. And you're not going to do anything that you'd be embarrassed to tell your family about. So I've run things that way, and I swear by it that even when I worked for somebody, my teams, I was very loyal to the people. that. And on some of those big projects, I had 30 people working for me. You know, 140 or $200 million project, that's like running a decent-sized company in itself. So I found that that really, really works. And if somebody is not going with the program, they stick out like a sore thumb. Do you have any specific examples uh, as to how you maybe use the principle from that book to inspire loyalty in a particular individual? Um, in I told them about it. When I hired them, I told them the book. I told them what my philosophy is. They can see with their own eyes that they come in in the morning. Uh, my office is right there in the middle. It's glass. It's always open. I go out and I talk to people. I sit down at their desk if I want to meet with them instead of saying, come in and see the boss. Um, we have this open uh, environment. We have town hall meetings. So we're always doing things like that. We'll just say, you know, next Thursday, we're going to close the office at three o'clock and get a bunch of snacks and beer in and let's just sit around. And yeah. so they feel it's a family. Well, and, and this actually um, subtle thing here, you even talked about uh, your practice of not necessarily having, oh, come into my office to talk to you. You come out there and you talk to the individual right. at their desk it shows that you're on the same level, right. that you respect their, your, their opinion, that you listen to them as, an, as a leader of the organization. Yes. It makes them feel valued just by that small micro action that someone might totally overlook. Right. right. I, I also, I train everybody for presentations. I did it, my other companies. So I, I sit them down. These are people who are like, especially a construction superintendent or a young guy, like I got to stand up there. They're shaking already. And I said, listen, we're going to write you a script. And every day when you're in the shower, you're driving in your car, you're going to say, uh, good morning, my name's Larry Petretti, and I'm going to be the project superintendent on your job. And my responsibility is to coordinate with all the subcontractors, to communicate with the building, coordinate all the drawings with the design team. And then you're going to go through explaining that. And I said to them, I said, we're going to rehearse, and you're going to have to stand up in front of everybody, which I still do to this day, even though I've done a thousand presentations. And I said, but what you're going to realize is we have everything scripted. So if you get up and you freeze or something happens, I'm going to jump right in. Mm -hmm. And usually with one or two, within one or two presentations, they become like relaxed. And it gives them incredible confidence that here they are going out to win work with the owner and the top executives from the company. So there's things you can do for that younger generation that, they, they, they grow light at light speed doing that. So um, towards the end of these recordings, we like to do what we call a mentorship uh, segment, <laughs> if you will. But, um, you know, you've been in business now for seven years. Um, and uh, it's one of those things where it doesn't matter how long you're in business, there's always problems. So if you could take a step back and think about, you know, now that you're in it, what new challenges do you have right now? Or maybe you can hone in on sort of what is the one thing um, or a problem that you're trying to work through now at this stage uh, that's top of mind. There's one problem that plagues me for many, many years, and that is that people are afraid 
to say they failed at something or they have a problem because they don't want to be looked upon as they can't handle the job because we want to keep pushing people to accomplish more and more. So my speech, which is all the time, all problems at the end of the day end up on my desk. I would prefer you bring them to me sooner because when you do, if it's a problem with the subcontractor, if it's not enough manpower, or if it's missed scope, whatever it is, I can get the guys in that I need to. We do a lot of work with a lot of subs, and we can fix the problem. And then I hold up a pencil, and I say they have erasers on pencils because we're not perfect. And as long as 70% of your decisions are good, you're passing with me. And the only way you're going to learn is by those mistakes and come to somebody with experience. And it's hard to get people to realize that because their first thing is they want to hide it or, oh, I got to go to the boss and say, I just went last week and I messed this up. That's how you learn. A lot of managers don't understand the dynamics of the appropriate time and method to deliver feedback so that, and this is something I'm sure that you train your managers and you do yourself, but, um, you know, if an employee, every time they come to you with a mistake that they've made, if the immediate reaction is to, uh, to scold them, exactly then they're right. never going to want to tell you about their exactly mistakes. So, right. so making sure that uh, that the managers have the same practice of delivering feedback at appropriate moments. Maybe it's re- you know specific meetings every other month where they talk about your performance instead of every time reacting right. anytime there's a negative performance. And issue, again, right? one of the books, um, Lee Iacocca, when he took over Chrysler and when Lou Gerstner took over IBM when it almost failed, you know, and then he saved it. He found out that managers were responsible for doing the appraisals on like 200 people. Mm. How can you possibly do that? So they set up a tiered program and quarterly reviews. Because, and I said to my, we, we do that. I said, you don't want to call somebody in for their annual review and say, you screwed this up, this up, this up, this up. Right. You're not getting a raise. Like, why didn't you tell me sooner? Right. I mean, it's common sense. So that that's a, a very va- valid thing. And you have to be direct with people. Uh, they teach you when you appraise people, positive, negative, positive, you know, say, hey, doing a good job, but listen, you really need to improve this, this, and this, and end it on a positive note. And it's good advice. From this discussion, um, one of the reasons why I think you've been successful is you're hypersensitive to all these moving pieces and uh, and how people feel and what the what different decision-making you might have to do given a particular environment. And I think that's a problem for a lot of people. You know, they're stuck in their ways. They think that they're right. Uh, or they get in a position of power and they think, you know, why doesn't everybody just do what I say? But that's not how the world works. That's exactly right. Larry, um, to to wrap up this episode, what do you think you would say to the 35 or 40 year old who has been in the workforce for maybe 15, 20 years? They have always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but they're not quite ready yet. What can they do now to make sure that they're ready to start a business like you did by the time they turn 50 or 55? Maybe or when they're, yeah, when they're comfortable. Or even right now. Yeah. What would you so say to them? We had a saying when I first, the, the guy who taught me carpentry when I was right out of high school and being a laborer and a carpenter and all that, he said, steal with your eyes. He says, people don't realize how much they can learn by looking and listening. And I got to tell you, if a guy who is a carpenter with no college education can read books, and they're not books that are written in, you know, with all this, um, as they say, sesquipedalian verbiage, you know, these <laughs> million-dollar words, you, that's what you do. You educate yourself, and you watch, and you say, in the company you're working in, who's successful, who's not? Why are they successful? And, and I don't think there's any, I think 
especially look at how many people have come over here, my grandparents, with nothing and what they achieved in one or two generations. It's a land of opportunity for real, as, as corny as that may, that may sound. So I think you can learn a lot more than you think by just watching and listening. And, you know, if every day, like I use my train time, two hours a day to educate myself. You have to use the time that you have. Yes. You have to make sure that it's not getting wasted. Continue to educate yourself. Continue to grow credibility, gain trust, to work towards the inevitability that you want for yourself. And I'm going to educate myself right now as well. After this episode, um, you know, I, I, I took a look at some of the work that you guys have done. It's beautiful. And I need some help renovating my apartment. Right? <laughs> so maybe we'll get a little free workout. Right? Right. A little small scale with the trading group. But Thanks no. a lot for being on the show, Larry. It's been Thank great. Thank you for having me. Thank Appreciate you. it.